This is the Fire Dog Podcast. The views and opinions presented on today's episode are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or the United States Air Force. Welcome. My name is Matt Wilson here with Ben Perry, and thank you for joining us for episode 39 of the Fire Dog Podcast. Our guest today has been in the Air Force for 26 years. He's had assignments in Washington State, New Mexico, Maryland, Arizona, New Jersey, Colorado, South Korea, Italy, and the United Kingdom, and has deployed 14 times to Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Iraq, Afghanistan, Qatar, and the United Arab Emirates. He currently serves as the Air Force Fire Protection Career Field Manager, where he advises the Air Force Civil Engineer on the utilization of 5,689 total force firefighters, establishes career field entry requirements, and shapes policy and developmental pathways for Air Force fire protection. It is my pleasure to welcome Chief Master Sergeant Philip Winkleman. Cool, Chief. Well, thanks so much for agreeing to come on. We're excited to talk with you. Um, a lot to cover. A lot's changed since we talked to Chief Morris. So uh, we're excited to find out uh, what new things are going on, what kind of initiatives are, you know, going, and uh, what's important to you. But before we get into all that, we want to get to know you a little bit. Could you tell us where you're from, You know who you are, give us a brief rundown of your career thus far? Sure thing. Hey, Ben, Matt, thanks for the invite to come be on the show. I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, really am thankful for you two keeping this alive. For those of you that don't know out there in, in the, the podcast land, this isn't like their primary job. This is something they just do uh, because they enjoy it and they want to get the message out to everyone out there in the world. And I really applaud both of your efforts uh, as you bring this across. You know, you say longtime listener, first time caller. Well, that's me. So I've been listening to you guys since uh, Square one and it's pretty cool to have the opportunity to come speak with you guys but thanks so like like you both said uh chief winkleman uh, i'm the new career field manager uh, 25 years of service uh, started out as a, a young airman over at milton hall uh, transitioned over to fairchild did some time at uh osan where i got to be a crew chief um, then went to the illustrious land of Cannon Air Force Base in Clovis, New Mexico, and did a little time there in the sand and met some really great people. Uh, got the opportunity to go to Aviano Air Base after that and do three years in USAFE, which was a great experience. Uh, then found myself on the backside of that coming to Andrews Air Force Base in Maryland. Um, did three, five, five years there, I think, and then um, decided to go off to uh, be the Fire Emergency Services Functional Manager for Headquarters Space Command in uh, Peterson Air Force Base, Colorado, which is where I kind of got my first real look at how the Air Force works outside of the flight, which was completely eye-opening, and I highly recommend it to anyone that gets those opportunities. Uh, left there and rolled out to Osan again. Um, did a year there with some really great people. Uh, moved on to Joint Base McGuire, Dix Lakehurst. Uh, Korea decided they hadn't had enough of me, so they sent me to Kunsan after that. Was fortunate enough to go back to McGuire. Um, ended up being fortunate enough to meet Chief. Went to Luke, uh, did two years there as a fire chief. And then here I am in the Pentagon working with Chief Pittman to try and make uh, Air Force fire protection better than it is today. Um, have 14 deployments over my 25 years of service, and that's pretty much me. That's a lot. <laughs> Did you ever see yourself as the career field manager becoming the career field manager? So I did not, I don't think I did. I think I, um, I've had a bunch of really awesome mentors over the years and I have a bunch of people that I really call close friends and, 
Um, you know, you work in the fire service long enough, you gain relationships that are family. They're not just acquaintances. And I have a lot of a second family that I lean on and I talk to and that work with me. And a lot of them will say, hey, we always saw you going that route. If you ask me, I giggle every time somebody tells me that you're the career field manager, right? Um, I'm just kind of a humble cat. That's always kind of the way I've been. And to have this opportunity is 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 daunting, but at the same time, it's pretty rewarding to be able to see everybody and make the changes and try and move fire protection forward. Uh, my first supervisor told me the first day I was I arrived at Mildenhall, he said, if you take care of people, they'll take care of the mission. And that's always been my primary focus in, in every endeavor I ever do. And I can't think of a better place to basically take care of people, right? That's what we do. Cool. Well, before we get into the big talking points here, considering some may not completely understand what the career field manager job is or what it entails, could you explain what the role is? You know, what are your focus points? Um, I guess some examples could be, uh, do you have influence over civilian matters, um, clarify differences between the career field manager and the Air Force fire chief, stuff like that? Sure. That we can do that. So I really didn't know everything the career field manager's job entails until I actually sat in the seat, right? There is no OJT training course, if you will, to be the career field manager. There's no training that gets you lined up for it. Um, Chief Pittman and I have a great relationship. We work hand in hand with everything. So there is stuff that falls into my lane clearly when we talk about career field health or entry requirements or manning of the career fields. Um, personal policies and programs, uh, coordinating on MAGCOM readiness divisions and advisor to the DOD Fire Academy. But nothing is done in a vacuum and everything we do from the military or from the civilian force or from the total force for that matter is all done together. We wanna make sure that we don't do one thing that can impact another negatively. In order to do that, we have to be on the same page. So we're constantly working with each other as we bounce ideas off, hey, what if I do this? Or what if I do that? And we wanna look at those third and fourth order effects so we don't end up hurting one side of the force or as Chief Morris used to say, you know, you can't grow one leg without the other, right? Everybody has to be equal for the base of the entire organization to work. So you're saying that your your role is primarily focused on military and his is on civilian or that you both kind of do both in concert? We both do both in concert. That's right, Ben. So we both work with each other to try and ensure we're doing the right thing by the total force. Got it. And that makes sense. I mean, you don't want to, like you said, grow one leg without the other. Um, It's funny how we see we, we want to divide roles up and say, you know, you're responsible for X, Y, and Z and, you know, Chief Pittman or, or the Air Force Fire Chief is uh, responsible for these other X, Y, and Z things. But sometimes at that level, it's maybe not so clear, I bet. And you, you've got to try to work together on how you can improve the force. And it's going to take both of you equally to do that. Yeah, you, have, you hit it dead on there. You got We got to work together to get after this. And I mean, I could sit inside my bubble and only focus on the military and drive policy and program that specifically helps the military move forward. But I'm completely forgetting about an entire entity and other side of our forces, just as if not more important than we are. You know, when you talk about this one team, one fight, um, it's not just a tagline. We really need to be all in on everything. Right. Well, Chief, you've been in for in a number of years, a couple of decades plus, right? Putting it nicely. Um, 
how, how has the service changed since you've joined? You know, what are some of the big significant things that you've seen um, evolve over time? Uh, just kind of curious, a question I like to ask folks that have been in a long time. It helps us remember back to the way things were, where they are now and how we got there. The folks that were instrumental in those changes in between. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think one of the things I look for and I, I'm trying to bring back is, I, and you heard me talk about this, Ben, when I, I came and saw you, is I want to I wanna bring back the kitchen table, right? Yep. I want to bring back the mentality and the fire flights where we did a great thing by uh, the fire station design guide by giving everybody their own space and we put TVs in everybody's rooms and it was a great morale thing that people really wanted. But I think it's it's kind of negatively affected our flights, right? Um, Every change has a has a balancing opposite effect. Yes, completely right. agree. Completely agree. And we got that privacy and we got that place to go hang out, but we lost the camaraderie in the fire stations and we lost that kitchen table where you could come out and you could just talk and you could build those soft skills and those relationships. And when you're talking about analog leadership in a digital world, when you have airmen that would you, tr you try and call them and they won't pick up the phone and they right. text you back and they're like, Hey man, what'd you need? Well, I want to talk to you. Right. Yeah. And that's one of my biggest fears right now is we're in an environment where potentially an airman doesn't know how to ask for help because they don't have that soft skill set. And I want to bring that back. I want to bring back that kitchen table and I want to bring back that camaraderie we had in the flights. I, I learned the most from the kitchen table with a cup of coffee from senior military and senior civilians with inside the organization that taught me not, you know, life skills and how to be a better firefighter and how to be a better person. And that, that's just, it, that's invaluable. And right. I think we really need to bring that back. And inside the fire service, everything's right circular. So when you look at how we're going to deploy in the future, which we're going to touch on for a lot of the guys that listen to this that were back in the late 90s, you're going to be like, man, we did that back in the 90s. This is nothing new. Everything that's old is new again, right? And it's just that cycle of things within the fire service. And you brought up that you might text somebody, or I'm sorry, they're going to text you and and it's just such a different way to communicate now. There's a part that we own in that too. And I'll say we as in maybe the folks who didn't grow up with cell phones in our pocket to be able to be responsive to those text messages yep. and not just say, well, if they're not going to answer the call, they must not want to talk. A text message may be a cry for help some, from somebody where you may not recognize it as that if, if you're not plugged into that mentality. Yep, you're completely right, Ben. What a great point is that analog leadership in a digital world goes both ways. When we can rub off soft skills on our airmen, like connectedness and communication, they can rub off those tech skills on us. I mean, I tell people I walk around and say, hey, you can get me on my MySpace page because that's kind of how old I am. I still have a MySpace account as we go into the future. And everybody looks at that. They're like, what's MySpace? Well, right. I mean, I still text. I know how to do that. And I have a lot of conversations over text with a lot of our airmen in the force. And I hope others do too. And they're not just being dismissive, as you say, if you will, because that could be a reach out. You're 100% right. For sure. All right, Chief, this is an exciting one. I'm uh, particularly interested in this one. So we've heard a little bit about the changes in the Air Force and Department of Defense on how we present forces downrange. Uh, many have likely heard of AF4Gen or Air Force Force Generation and ACE, Agile Combat Employment. Uh, recently, Ben and I had the privilege to look over the the talking points or the presentation 
that uh, the guys in FES recently put together on how that would look for firefighters. So I know that much of it isn't finalized and some of it's sensitive, but what can you tell us about this? Yeah, great question, Matt. So uh, I'm going to try and walk the line of what I can and cannot say. So if I see you guys waving your arms frantically as I'm talking, that'll be my cue to stop because I'm going too far. Um, So about a year ago, they came out with this idea of Afrogen and how they wanted to present forces outside of the Air Expeditionary Task Force that we had right now. And when you think about it, for the last 20 years, we've been fighting violent extremist organizations overseas, and we got real good at it. We got very good at it. Um, But our adversaries watched for 20 years, and our adversaries saw how we bring the fight, and they saw what we do and our tactics, our techniques, and our policies and procedures. And for the last 20 years, they invested in ways to defeat that. And they invested in ways to get after us at the heart of what we do every day. So General Brown has decided that we need to change how we do business. And he let that loose in his action orders that he published and said, these are not just things we need to think about. The first word of it is action. They're action orders. We need to get after this right now if we're going to develop the airmen we need for the 2030 fight, which is a peer fight, right? People will say near peer, but it's not near peer when you look at it. It's a peer fight, and we need to be ready for that. So holistically, when you look at Afrogen and you look at ACE and you look at MCA, um, if you put it in simple terms, Afrogen is how the players get on a field, right? If we put it in sports like a basketball team, Afrogen brings the players to the court. ACE is the plays those players run. And MCA or multi-capable airmen is the point guard a lot being able to be the center and still be effective, right? Doing different mission sets inside of your own skill set to be combat effective. Fire and emergency services has always been heavy, right? When you think about what we bring to the fight, you're looking at uh, our policies and procedures dictate the amount of water, the amount of equipment, the amount of everything. And it takes a significant airlift to get us in theater, but we're very good at what we do. There's no argument that Air Force Fire and Emergency Services is the only projectable, combat-capable fire and emergency services in the DOD. We bring the fight, bottom line. We just got to kind of change how we bring that fight and we got to become lighter. We got to become lethal. We got to be scalable, adaptable, and hostile. Um, I don't want to get into it too much. You guys read it, but uh, an example is what the normal manpower we would send to support one installation is now going to support seven. And when you think about that as a, as a firefighter, you're like, oh my goodness, level of service and uh, nope, need to table all that. This traditional level of service is not the primary concern anymore. It's the capability we bring to the fight to rescue airmen, right? Pilots. Chief, I want to, you, you mentioned the phrase, the firefighter we've, we have today is not the firefighter we're going to need in 2030. What, what does that mean, right? So the firefighter is going to look different, act different, have different skill sets. Are we going to train them different? What's, what's that mean? Everything you just said, Ben, is what we're going to do. We're going to do a complete paradigm shift in fire and emergency services from how we train, how we fight, how we think, how we beat out pacing challenges with our adversaries to leverage technology to gain a kinetic effect downrange. Everything you've known for the last 15 years of both of your careers, and I'm guessing 15 years of service, but I might be wrong, maybe less because Matt looks a little younger than Ben just on camera. Just going to throw that out there. Uh, Don't take offense, Ben. Um, yeah, everything changes. Everything we know has to change because we cannot bring the same fight we've done for 20 years to the next fight. It's not going to work. 
Well, and the next fight's here, right? I mean, to a degree, we may not be in it, but there's fighting, right? Yep. There's stuff going on today. You are 100% right. I mean, when we sat there, who would have thought that on a Sunday morning, you'd have gone to sleep and you'd woke up Monday morning and Russia's inside Ukraine, right. right? General Brown says it best when he sat in a staff meeting and he said, war with Russia in China is not unlikely at any time, right? It is not unlikely at any time that you never know when somebody's going to make the move that drives us to the next fight. We have seen, obviously, open source hypersonic technology being employed in Ukraine. We know that that's a technology that is in the world right now. Um, your bases are no longer sanctuaries. We are not untouchable by any means. And that's what's going to drive how we re reinvigorate readiness across our formations. Chief, talking a little bit about that, I don't know how much you can get into the details of things. But from what I understand, there's a hub and spoke concept. Are you, are you able to speak on that? Sure. It's a ACE is a schema maneuver, right? That's all ACE is agile combat and plan. The ability to be proactive and the ability to be reactive based off your location. If you wanted to move closer to the fight or you wanted to move farther away, because if you're hard to find, you're hard to target and you're hard to hit. Okay. So if they can't see you, they can't find you. They can't target you. And if you keep moving around, you make it harder for them to find and hit you. That's the whole premise behind agile combat employment. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's going to really drive a lot of changes in how we train, how we prepare, um, home station training, 10 to 10 comes to mind. It'll probably get completely revamped on our civil engineer side of things. Is that going to change some of the advanced training that we would think about going to tour, you know, when we get a little closer to the fight? We may be more involved in the fight, which might drive other requirements, weapons training, et cetera. Yeah, you're right. So we're, there's a team of professionals that just went, um, I may mess this up. I think it was last week or the week before that their whole purpose was to develop the training requirements for Afrogen, not only for individuals, but Afrogen that may be utilized in those forward locations or as they call them, CLs, right? Contingency locations. But the kicker is that that training is going to apply to everybody because how do you take a single team and only identify certain individuals because it takes away your scalability, your adaptability, and your flexibility. Everybody has to be trained the same to the same level to do the same jobs in the same scheme of maneuver or yeah. this whole thing doesn't work. Now, when you talk about the multi-capable airmen, that's, I assume, not going to be only weapons training and being closer to the fight in that regard, but you know, what does that mean? Are we going to be cooks or security or building tents? Are we going to be doing the whole meal deal as, you know, three to seven or however many airmen end up going down to these forward locations? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, Multi-capable airmen was brought about to try and invoke change across the enterprise, right? But I would argue that airmen engineers have been multi-capable before multi-capable was cool. Right. I mean, we've always done other things outside of our AFS. When you look at fire and emergency services specifically, I mean, we pin aircraft, we marshal aircraft. Um, we're real good around aircraft. Some places I know where you're at, Ben, they actually open airfields, remote airfields and do other things. We bring a strong medical component to the flight. We're great at command and control. We're good with the Army because we've deployed in lieu of so often. When you look at those QSTs we've been doing for the last, uh, my goodness, 10 years, that was MCA in action. That was right. Fire and Emergency Services MCA at airfields doing austere actions. And we're just going to carry that forward and um, formalize it. Yeah. 
Well, it, it sounds exciting to to look at. I mean, Matt, what do you think on that? Yeah, I, I was just going to say that. You took the words out of my mouth. I mean, it's really, I think of it from like a recruitment perspective too. I mean, this is this is something pretty awesome. You know, if, if I were going to sell this to an 18 year old at a high school, they'd really want to join the air force, you a know, little like closer capable to airmen and battlefield airmen sort of right. stuff, you know, it, it really reminds me in the Marine Corps, like you're an airman first, you're a Marine first, and then you have your specialty, right? It, it, it sounds very similar to the Marine Corps in that you have to know how to take care of things associated with getting aircraft into the air, recovering them, um, and whatever other little skill. And then your specialty happens to be fire protection. Okay. Go grab the fire protection equipment. If, and in, if, and when you need it, you know, is that kind of a right assessment, right thought? Yeah, that's fair. I mean, when you bring that up, it's about uh, generation of combat air power and conducting logistics under attack. That's what we're trying to do. And it's a mindset where fire and emergency services sit there and you wait for something to happen. Right. You're waiting for an emergency to happen to employ your skills. Well, we have so many other skills that can be employed in that waiting time and still be in a posture that's acceptable to respond to an emergency. And we can bring the fight. We bring the fight like nobody else. And we're really good at it. So, yeah, it's, it's really it's exciting times. Um, I'm looking forward to how this rolls up. I know we're on a really quick clock for employment and when they want to go fully operational capable, but we got a solid team of uh, your peer group and my peer group that have come together to build this. And we only started in December of last year when it came on deck. It's like, hey, so have you guys seen this? And we're like, whoa, maybe we better right. do something about it. And uh, we've reacted violently and pushed forward as quickly as possible to get to the right solution. Default aggressive, as Jocko Willink would say. I got yeah, my Jocko. Always, your Jocko <laughs> always default aggressive. Yeah. What would you say? Uh, violence of action, default violence. What'd you say? Uh, execute violently. Execute violently. I like that go. too. Awesome. Well, what kind of timeline? I guess rough estimate of a tef- timeline. Because if I'm a listener, I'm listening to this. I'm like, hey, when is this coming to the streets? When am I gonna be training? and deploying under this concept? Uh, If I was a betting man without getting too far into the weeds, I'd say by Halloween of next year. Oh, wow. That's very specific. By by Halloween of next year, you'll be required to be capable of this. So now back the training up. Nice. Which is today. Yeah, literally (laughs) today. We have to develop the airmen we need for 2030 right now. Exactly. Chief, with this, you know, these new pushes to change the way we fight to change the way we conduct firefighting operations. Even, I mean, down to the details of how we put water on fire, uh, looking at those plans. I mean, the trucks are different. The tools are different. The water requirements are going to be different. That's going to inherently change so much stuff as we change. How are we helping the force adapt to those changes? And I'll ask a, a kind of a built-in follow-up question. You know, we talked about behavioral health at the last SFO conference um, as, as something that's coming online soon, and we're going to start getting folks uh, maybe integrated. And how does that look? Have we developed that? And how is it going to actually address some of these changes that we're having? Yeah, another great question. So behavioral health is one of my top priorities because I we just have to do better. We have to all be better. 
Um, we've got a team that's been assembled of fire and emergency service professionals from every grade, every gender, every race, every branch, MAGCOM, and we tried to get as big of a diverse window as we could. And they're going to be coming together from the 25th to the 29th of April um, down in Maxwell with the sole purpose in life of building a comprehensive firefighter behavioral health program for Air Force Fire and Marine Services. And then I went out and I started beating on doors, right? I started getting the mental health community and I got them, they're gonna participate. They're sending down their chief of operations and their career field manager. And then I went and beat up the resiliency people. And I said, I need you guys' help. And they're sending their lead from resiliency. And I talked to other organizations that have a key part in this. I said, come on down, let's help build this program. And they're all in it. So we have an all in and we're gonna get after this because my the biggest thing people don't realize is the cumulative mental stress that is associated with emergency services, right? The average person sees eight major life altering critical events in their lifetime. And that could range depending on the person. Well, in emergency services, you have your own eight, and then you have all the ones that you responded to that build upon that cumulative mental stress until the point that you just can't take it anymore. And uh, we put it inside the AFI and we codified it saying every fire department will have a behavioral health program. I feel like I owe it to the departments to not just put it into policy and say thou shalt, but I'll put it in there. It says thou shalt. And oh, by the way, here's this giant war chest of ideas programs and pick what's going to work for your organization, but please follow this standard requirement. So let, let's talk about how, how it's applied in the real world, right? So we've, I think all three of us have definitely been involved in reading an SOP or looking at maybe something in our, our guiding documents. And how do we answer that? We say, well, the base has this resource, so that's how we answer it. The base has a mental health provider, so we're good. Is that enough? Is that going to check this box? No, it is not. So when we when we write this, it's going to be written specifically based off the NFPA standard. And the NFPA standard says a behavioral health program will have, and I, I don't have it in front of me, but there's like five or six key components, pillars, if you will. And you have to have something that fits as a, each of those pillars to be effective inside of that NFPA requirement. And yeah. I just have to, I, we are going to have to nail that down and provide, because nothing's the same CBT is not going to work for everybody. Let's be completely honest here. It's not going to work across the board. Each department's going to have to build a program that works for their organization or they're never going to develop a felt need for this program. Would you say that there's a, there's a call or a need or maybe even an upcoming mandate? I don't know how it's going to be designed, but to have a person filling that role like a provider or a you know, a chief officer, somebody that's in, in charge of this in the department, if, even if that's maybe not their primary duties, make it an HSO job or, or have a staff provider. I don't know how that might look. Yeah, I completely agree. There has to be somebody that takes this to heart and, and runs with it, if you will. Um, we all know that the, uh, our mental health professionals are overwhelmed, right? Um, we all know that the access to care is probably not where we'd like to like it to be. And we all know that the climate inside of our organizations is a suck it up mentality in the fire service. Um, Right, wrong, or indifferent, that needs to go away. The suck it up mentality inside the fire service needs to be ushered into an error to never come back. It needs to be okay to not be okay, as you would say. Um, 
I have seen, uh, just to put it out there, I've gone and seen uh, mental health professionals for issues that I've had, both in family-related and in in the job. I have a lot of friends that have as well, and it's not a stigma. It's not a bad thing. I'm still a full return to service. I still deploy once in a while, as you've seen from my uh, my bio. It doesn't change you. It just gives you the tools and it gives you the abilities to deal with the things that you see on a daily basis that don't always compute right. Right. What's the biggest hurdle you think for our younger folks? I mean, I know in the last handful of years, I don't, I don't know that there's ever, that there's been large chunks of times without a suicide in the fire service, but in the last handful of years, we, us, the air force fire service have had a, a number and that's a, that's a real problem. What do you think, you know, maybe Phil Winkleman's personal opinion on the, the biggest problem. Yeah, that's a, you guys don't ask small questions here, do you? In the old fire dog podcast, you really come in hot. Um, One opportunity to talk to you, chief. Right. Roger that. I mean, I think it goes back down to, I mean, you can, you can cycle it into a lot of things, but you know, the Phil Winkleman thought process is we've kind of created an environment inside the fire service where a true friend will stab you in the front, right? When we talk about stratification and we talk about force distribution and we talk about, um, we kind of created those environments that aren't necessarily productive environments for connectiveness and communication. Um, and now couple that with, uh, our promotion rates are at the height of what they've been in who knows how long, and we're making three-year staff sergeants, okay? And there's nothing nothing against their, their abilities, and congratulations for getting that, but do you really, I mean, can we really expect a three-year staff sergeant to have the knowledge, skills, ability, and experience to be able to guide an airman through a problem like that? To be fully equipped. To be fully equipped, exactly, to be able to get after that and then also be have that airman be willing to listen to that feedback, be able to take what that they're being told and apply it. And I don't think we have that right now when you look holistically across our force. Now couple that with the the 25 year uh, military and or civilian that's sitting at the kitchen table telling them to suck it up. That's just the way it is. It was the way it was when I was an airman and we don't talk about our feelings. We just drink coffee and crack jokes. And now you have that airman sitting there that's now torn between, well, I can't talk to him. I don't know how to talk to him. Who do I talk to? And oh, by the way, now take external factors, whether it be home, family, life, whatever. And it becomes too much to bear at times. And uh, I just wish that we could find an answer to that. I am, I'm still hunting for the answer. If I'm honest, I'm still looking for it, but I'm going to try and throw everything in my power at every organization inside fire and emergency services. So I never have to answer or see another one of those emails. Yeah. Agreed. Chief, have you heard of task force true North? I have. And is that a concept that we're thinking about or we're looking at how effective it was? So true North was a, for those of you in, 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 uh, in the virtual land that may not know what true north was there was a significant issue inside the missile air and uh, nuclear community where they found some shortfalls where those individuals that hold those clearances couldn't go and speak to healthcare professionals because they didn't hold the same clearance so they couldn't talk openly and honest about what they're seeing and what they're doing and the effects because it was like, hey, what'd you do at work today? Well, I, I could tell you, but then, you know, I'd have to kill you, right? The old mentality. Mm. But um, 
that's kind of what they were faced with. So they uh, were able to get the right people with the right clearances in there and they embedded them inside the organizations to be able to walk those intel floors and walk those missile silos and so on and so forth to be able to be there and, and understand what those emergency services, or excuse me, not emergency services, what those individuals in the nuclear career fields were going through. And it did reap some significant benefits um, inside those organizations, but again, everything comes with a dollar figure, right? And right. a cost. Um, fire and emergency services holistically compared to the rest of the Air Force is a little higher in suicides and in our mental health issues as a, as a career field. Um, what we found out that we brought to the attention was they were only tracking military by AFSC. They were not tracking the civilian side of the house by AFSC. It was only tracked as a civilian. So when we got somebody into that data and then shout out to uh, Ryan Ranieri down at the AEF center, he dug in with them and, and helped them pull out a lot of that data. We found out, unfortunately, we are we're in that high risk category. We're in that significant category. Um, as a as an AFSC inside the Air Force, when you take our civilian and our military numbers, uh, and that's not somewhere I want to be. That's not somewhere right. I want to be first at. So we really got to get after this. And I would love to take a mental health professional and a team and drop them into every fire station and every all of our eighty six fire stations active duty, and then give access to our guard and reserve brothers and sisters. But I still can't fix the the 400 firefighters were short, let alone that I one. I still can't see my yeah. PCM more than once a year. I mean, we're, we're just short providers. Yeah, you're not wrong. So I don't yeah. know how we would do that, but that would that sounds good. Yeah, yeah I didn't know if that was a, you know, a talking point in a discussion. Like, let's embed these counselors, uh, therapists, psychologists within units. Uh, and so we tried it out at J-Bear when I was stationed there. There was a therapist embedded within our unit, and she had kind of a personal relationship with with each one of us, just like you would have with a first sergeant, you know, you know, this person, you know, them by name, you say hi to them in the morning. Uh, maybe you don't necessarily need any kind of counseling service. You just know who they are. So when that time does come where you do need some kind of counseling service, and maybe it's pretty low threat, you have her as a sounding board, somebody who's professionally trained for that. And, uh, when it first came, came online, uh, you're like, ah, oh, you know, we'll, probably won't use her too much, you know, pretty minimal, but it turned out like, well, let's, let's send him over there to talk to this trained therapist because I'm a 25 year old staff sergeant. What do I know? What can I say to this person? How do I counsel them through this complicated life event? You know? And if I'm not wrong, chief, correct me. Um, the firehouse has a, so a form of counselor or, uh, something like that. There was just the, the all call a couple of days ago with her. Am I, am I tracking that correct? Yes. You're, so it's a, um, she, uh, when you mean by firehouse, you're talking the Goodfellow schoolhouse, Goodfellow, correct? Yeah. yeah. So Goodfellow has an individual they have on staff that is a physi right. physiolog physiologist. So she's done, it's Miss Davis. Um, right. Shout out Goodfellow. Um, she's done a great job in trying to help prepare. It started off as kind of a women in fire initiative to help, um, candidates get the muscle movements and the cognitive side that everybody needed. And it turned into like all the students go to her to talk about how they can um, do better in the fire school, whether it be from conditioning, study habits, academia, uh, cooking, health. Like it's just that person that they can so go maybe to. Maybe not say, specific mental health stuff, right. but a little bit more of a life 
you know, yep. life coach, right. same, stuff, same yeah. idea applies, right. you know, and those so, are on that personal level. Those are still yeah. pillars that are part of that whole mental resiliency and behavioral health. Sure, it's right. not just mental health. It's, it's fitness. It's that fit, fit, fitness of the force initiative that you may have heard of that the chief master in the air force just dropped out about two weeks ago where she's trying to instill that fitness of the force culture, uh, kind of the old pillars. If you were from back in the day of resiliency, but a more robust and try and get after it culture. Chief, I'd like to transition to a little something a little bit more lighthearted. If uh, <laughs> I know those are tough back-to-back questions for you, back-to-back topics. Um, what can you tell us about the seven-level school? What kind of progress are we having with that, if any? Yeah, good question. So we had some really good progress with the seven-level school. We got together. My goodness, when did we get together? We were... Was that August of last year where we all came together and built the the academia for it? Um, yeah, somewhere around somewhere that around time. that time, uh, it's gone through the administrative wickets. It's gone to the manpower squadron for them to allocate and determine our manpower factor. And I have in my inbox as of last week a course resource estimate, which is basically telling me how much, how big is the check we got to write to make this work. Um, we're doing our due diligence on that. Uh, Senior Master Sergeant Wyatt down at AFCAC, along with some other individuals, have really been helping us shape this um, with the goal of signing that out and starting the beta tests of our seven-level course. Um, we're going to be down at Goodfellow in, oh my goodness, look at my calendar here, April, uh, the week of the 18th to the 22nd for the Fire and Marine Services uh, Working Group, which is all the DOT components, as well as that week is the Firefighter Heritage Foundation uh, annual uh, in- event and memorial. So those are some pretty big things going on that week. And we're going to discuss this seven level school in depth uh, with the goal of coming out of the backside with a hopefully a signed CRE and a way forward to put this into action. I, I really want to see this come to fruition. Um, if you look at the the class and you look at what we're trying to do, it's not a sitting death by PowerPoint. This is sets and reps. This is sitting in that crew chief company officer position and running 20 to 30 days of nothing but different emergencies to build that confidence in that fire officer to be able to do the job. I would argue that we're some of the most certified firefighters in the world, but I would also argue that we need more, you know, qualified firefighters, if you will. And I don't know that anybody would argue with that statement. Yeah, technically competent. Yep. Operationally competent. Exactly. They need to be able to do the job and do it with confidence because we gave them the tools before. I mean, imagine a world where we're going to train you appropriately before you have to do the job. It's a, it's a crazy thought, I know, but we're trying to get after it. I certainly could have used something like that. You know, I, I think I'd be much better had I had a seven-level school that was constructed like Sergeant Wyatt presented. And yeah, for those of you interested in hearing some of the details, episode 33, that was back in July of last year. I talked to Senior Master Sergeant Jeff Wyatt about that. Shameless plug. <laughs> You got to get people to go back hey, and listen, you know, got to get the clicks. And, and he, he, well, he went into a lot of depth, uh, with kind of how, what the rationale was and, right. you know, what each, I guess, block of training for lack of a better term, how it was constructed. And, you know, I remember walking away from that episode excited, you know, so if you feel like, uh, if something that that's something that interests you, this idea of a seven level school, listen to that episode it'll get you fired up. Yep. It is a, it's a really cool idea. It's a cool thing. I really hope we can push it across. Uh, I have 
I'm cautiously optimistic because everything comes with a manpower bill and a funding sure. bill. So I got to try and carve that out yeah. of something else, but we're going to get after it. I, I remember talking to Sergeant Wyatt, like, you know, the PowerPoint that he had presented was, you know, awesome. But at the same time, you realize that eh, we're probably not going to get 100% of this, right? But if we could at least get close, right? If we could get to a place where there's an at least a truck, there's at least an opportunity to, with your peers, go through these reps of tactically leading an engine company, for example. Uh, I think that alone would be beneficial, right? If that was just a week. Um, that would be awesome. That'd be fun too. Yeah. And we're not going to wait. So part of my, my, when I sat down with the powers that be, I said, we're not waiting to be a hundred percent on this because perfection is the enemy of innovation. Right. right. So let's get a 15, 20% solution and move out violently. If we right. got to move to night shift, so we have the resources available. A lot of us remember going to school at Goodfellow and there was a night shift. Imagine mm -hmm. that it can be done. It's mm -hmm. a, we just got to do it. So let's move out and get after it. This is a pretty violent episode so far. Jim. Let's roll <laughs> like that. full send. This is, this is my style. So I'm, I'm on board. Well, we, we talked about school. Uh, let's kind of keep it in that wheelhouse a little bit. Uh, curious and I've got no lead on this one, so I'm shooting in the dark here. Uh, are there any development opportunities that maybe we're looking at for civilians? You know, we talk a lot about military on the show, but you know, a lot of the stuff we, we talk about also applies in the civilian world. So I don't know if there's anything you can talk about that maybe we're, we're aiming specifically at civilian development. Um, and then, uh, I'll follow that up with kind of the military question about what else is out there. Maybe if you have anything to share on vectoring and all that, that jazz. Yep. Great question. So uh, again, the whole argument of strength of one leg without the other, our civilian counterparts are a huge part of our force and we have to deliberately develop them as well. Um, for the last four or five months, Chief Pittman, along with a team of experts, uh, other civilian fire chiefs have developed the first civilian CFETP which is just like the military. It's a guide to formalized education and a continuum of education throughout an individual's career. Is that out yet? That is not out yet. It is at the 95% solution. So you're getting an inside look right now on what Sounds we're like working on. Sounds like you need on. to violently get that out. I will violently get it to the streets as fast as possible, <laughs> Matt. Um, it's going through court right now. I think they're at the 95% solution. They just had to work out a couple of little wickets here and there, and then they're going to put it on the street. Um, inside of that, that identifies a lot of those civilian educational opportunities that a lot of people don't know about. Like, do you know you can send your civilians to SOS? Water, they can go to ALS. They can go to the NCO Academy. I mean, you can volunteer your civilians. I don't say volunteer. You can ask your civilians if they want to attend. And they're going to get these slots and go get that professional military education that the military gets just the same. They're as eligible as we are. Which but in a lot of hyper-competitive environment that we work in, those, those little things not only help them promote potentially, right? It might be a little nugget towards promotion, but also, of course, helps them develop as a leader makes better leaders. And that's what we're looking for. Makes better airmen, big A. Right. Um, and the more we can spread that around, the better. Uh, there's TA out there for civilians of certain grades where they can get the same TA we do um, for education to help them gain education, bachelor's degrees, and so on and so forth. You know, but we want to make sure we kind of divide this into career paths and career tracks because not every firefighter is on a leadership career path, right? We have our civilian firefighters out there that are the 
most professional firefighters you'll ever meet and they want to ride a truck and that's it. And I salute them for it. But for those that are on that leadership path, we need to have a clear line of education and formality to get them there and the opportunity. Same thing with those guys that want to ride a truck. There are tons of career paths out there and educational opportunities, whether it be through advanced training in the FDIC and other hot training and stuff like that to grow their capabilities as company officers. So we have to provide that for everyone. So same question, military side, what, you know, we've got the CFETP. It was just uh, revised, I think last year, maybe year before. Um, what about the kind of rank development? Uh, I think we've, we're doing master in vectoring now. We are, we are, that's hot off the street. So to back it up a little bit, we decided, uh, Chief Pittman and I, when we sat down, we, we don't do anything in a vacuum. So anything we're going to do, we involve subject matter experts from across the career field. And I have my own family of trusted agents that I've talked to for years and years. And if you don't have a family of trusted agents within the fire service, you can bounce stuff off of, you need to get one. It's just a group that you can, uh, you can talk to constantly. And, uh, they're going to tell you when you're stupid and they're going to tell you when you're doing good things. And you need that, you need that in your life. Um, we decided that uh, our education holistically is late to need, as we talked about with seven level school and we talked about with other things. Uh, we're gonna take the AFIT 427 class and we're gonna move it back and we're gonna make that class a station chief or captain's class so that we're training them how to be assistant chiefs before they do the job. Novel approach, right? Crazy idea. Crazy idea. And then we just started an AFIT 527, which is gonna be a fire chief's course which is going to be for uh, sitting deputy fire chiefs. And it's going to go into those because who trains you how to be a fire chief, right? You just show up one day with the stripes and you sit in the big office and you're expected to know everything, right? Here's the keys, bud. Good luck. Don't drown, right? Kick them in the pool. And the worst person is the one who thinks they do. Exactly. You're 100% right. The guy, I mean, 25 years of service and I'm still taking classes. I'm still doing education because the day you think you know everything is the day it's time to leave because you're going to hurt somebody. Um, our first beta test class for 527 is going to be, oh my goodness, this September, I think, uh, the week of the 19th. Uh, that beta class is going to be with sitting fire chiefs. So we're going to invite sitting fire chiefs in to sit through the class and review it as a beta and say, okay, we're, did we nail it? Were we off? How do we got to tweak? Do, what do we got to do? Um, and then after that, the class goes live for FY23, and there'll be one 527 class every year and we push the 427 quotas down and we do three or four of those a year at AFIT. Nice. Um, and when we talk about education of our force, it's not just our enlisted and our civilians, it's our officer corps as well. We can't just take a Lieutenant Colonel and a BCE and send him to a three day fire marshal course and say, poof, you're the fire marshal. You know everything about the fire department. We need to start growing them as lieutenants and as captains. And we're getting involved in the uh, AFIT 101, 201, and 301, which are the lieutenant, captain, and major courses. We're already in 400. And we're going to start spreading the goodness that is fire and emergency services all throughout the officer corps. Interesting. Who's teaching that stuff at AFIT? Um, I do. So I go out there and I force feed uh, as much fire emergency services. You goodness. will learn this. Exactly. I teach it violently, if you will, to the force <laughs> and I make sure they they have it. I was just up there last week and we got to uh, 
to teach, to have an instructional block with the new BCEs that are coming online. And then we had another instructional block with the 570 students, which is all the new superintendents that are coming online. And I try and spread uh, as much goodness about fire services to anyone that'll listen. Excellent. So what can we expect as master sergeants with this vectoring stuff and senior master sergeants? I, you know, are there changes coming for them as well? Yeah, but good question. A little bit of changes. So uh, holistically as an enterprise, civil engineering uh, vectors to need, if you will. Uh, so when you're looking at the traditional side of the house and, you know, your HVAC tech or whatnot, they'll look at their career and say, oh, you've never been in Red Horse. So you need to go get some Red Horse on you. Or, oh, you've never been in a flight. You've been in Red Horse too long or vice versa. They, they vector them to needs. Fire and emergency services vectors to ability. Right. We vector to you can do the job right now because the last thing we want to do is send somebody to do a job somewhere that they're not prepared for and have never done and let them fail miserably. We never want to leave them cold, alone and afraid in that office trying to figure out what to do. Um, So we vector to ability and it's worked pretty good in our in our senior ranks and our chief ranks. And we um, we're now going to push that down to our mass sergeant ranks because we have a lot of standalone mass sergeant positions out there, whether they be at AFPC, IMSC, the headquarters staff, they are all over the place. And I would argue that maybe we're not sending the right person at the right time for the right job. And we've set some people up for failure. They've done the best job they could, and they've done great work. Um, Some of them have really, really done great work. When you look at some of them, we have in current positions, but you know, it's kind of hit or miss. Sometimes you get somebody in there that's completely lost and, and doesn't know how to ask for help or doesn't know how to do the job. And the program across the air force suffers and that individual suffers because we set them up for failure. So we want to make sure we get the right person in the right place at the right time. And I, I threw this at uh, chief select Tross and I said, Hey man, you ain't got nothing going on over there in Anderson. Why don't you do this for me? And there's a theme. I I do that a lot. So there's a lot of individuals inside our force that have gotten emails from me that I'm like, hey, you're not busy. Why don't you take care of this? And and our force holistically has really stepped up to help me get a lot of things and help us get a lot of things moved to fruition. Um, I will tell you, there's some people out there like uh, Chief Abrahamson. uh, I beat up uh, Chief Blanco, Chief Smith. There's a whole bunch out there that I'm constantly emailing. I'm like, hey, you're not busy. Do this. Hey, you're not busy. Do this. And and they've really stepped up and, and come to the plate to help out uh, the enterprise get after some really big topics. And I'm forever thankful for that. And I keep reaching out to other people to do it. Ben and Matt will be checking their email later and they'll get one from me. They just don't know it yet. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh, man. Definitely not busy. So yeah. we'll be waiting in the wings for it. Let's see. Chief, do you want to talk any about EMT or, you know, fire transport capability? Is there really anything to hit on that? I mean, I I know that uh, it was decided last year that the med group's going to maintain or withhold the transport capability and stuff like that. But I do see departments being progressive about their EMS training. And I know that we've just transitioned to national registry at the uh, schoolhouse and across the enterprise, everybody's nationally registered at the, at least the EMR level. What kind of stuff would you like to talk about with EMS, if anything? Yeah, so that letter came out and it wasn't surprising, obviously, if we, we look at the grand scheme and the scope of things. Um, I would argue that every organization needs to, as the word of the day is, execute violently as they roll out their national registry EMR or EMS programs um, and keep pushing forward on that. 
I think if I was a betting man, um, tides might be changing. Times might be changing as there's transitions across the force for efficiencies to be gained. We'll see what happens on the other side, but you never know. Um, we've already processed a couple waivers. I know Hill Air Force Base is doing BLS transport right now. Um, that was based off an MOU they did with their local EMS. And any fire department can do that locally if they find that there's a, a need to push that across. But just make sure you're doing it for the right reasons and that you're being supported with the manpower and the money you need to get it done because nothing's free, right? We just can't keep taking on mission sets without the, the funding and the manpower to go with it. We could hit the easy button right now and take EMS and say, we'll do it, but it's at a detriment to our already organic capability for fire and emergency services. And we can't do that. The, the one thing I would maybe add on a personal note is I find it frustrating as I'm sure everybody does. When, oh, here when we they, go. Here we go. <laughs> here we go. No, when they say, you know, here's a, here's a mission set, here's the task that you're going to take on. Okay. Well, part of the fire emergency services world is what is it? The quote is 80% EMS, but here's not enough staffing. Here's not enough people. Here's not enough resources. Um, that just doesn't make sense. And so I, I would be excited to see this come to fruition and, and hopefully earn a little bit more respect in the medical community. Not that we want to own every piece of it, but to, to have the resources we need to carry out the, the 80% of what we're really here for. Yeah, I completely agree. We're just trying to do the right thing by the, the community we serve, right? That's the right. bottom line is we're trying to provide a professional service to the communities we serve every day. And I, I, I get it. I ride a truck. I've, I've rode a truck my entire career. And when you're sitting there for 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, sometimes these locations waiting for a transport because it's not, it's coming from off base or it's delayed. That's, is that a professional service? Is that providing the best we can for the care for our residents? And we get right. that. It's just, we can't take that holistically without the support or we're, we're dead in the water. Right. And right. definitely not everybody's in love with the idea of taking on transport and right. gaining more responsibility on top of our already full plates. No, it's a whole know? lot of work. Yeah, mm -hmm. definitely. Yep. So still a lot more to think through on that. Yep. I would agree. Well, chief, you'd mentioned, Wanted to ask us questions, so I don't know if you're still up for that. But yeah, uh, let's do this. So I, I listen to a lot of these podcasts, and I've always wanted to be on the other side and ask the host questions and see what they had to say because it's always me under fire. So I thought it was only fair. Hey, let's turn it around a little bit and see what Matt and Ben got to say. We should have asked easier questions. <laughs> you should have, right? Because now it's payback. But the best part is they're going to edit this all out anyways, and you guys wouldn't exactly. even know what happened. So it doesn't really matter. Um, I would ask you guys, and I'm, I'm always looking for feedback. I, I, I consider myself to be pretty accessible across the force as I try and shape or sorry as we try and shape uh what we want fire protection to look like but i don't see everything right and i don't see the impacts certain things have in all four corners of fire protection if you will um and i'm always looking for that that honest and open feedback about hey if you were we say this question in 527 if you were the air force fire chief for the day what would you do and 90 percent of the answers is i'd buy my own trucks and i'd buy my own bunker gear right and, and we don't get the 
the true look at, at what is behind the curtain that we're not seeing because you don't know what you don't know till you don't know it. So I want to pose this question to both of you. Um, if you were the career field manager for the day, what was you, what would be your first attack? Like, what's the one thing you see in our career field that that has drove you bananas for years, and you're just like, why can't we get after this? Mm-hmm. And I'm going to write it on a post-it note here because I'm going to put it on my computer and see if we can't get after some of these things. And I remember Chief Morris asking this question in 427. Yep. And he had us write it down, right? And um, I'm a systems guy. I do well in systems. And so I understand the complexities of things, right? I don't want to say I understand the complexities of things, but I appreciate the complexities of things. So when someone mentions like, I want to be able to buy my own trucks. I want to be able to buy my own um, uniforms or PPE. When I, when I hear somebody like that say that, I understand the complexities of having to run a fire, a fire and emergency services organization across 168 locations, 10,500 people and how complicated that is. Right. Uh, and so I don't, lose sleep over things like that. That's not the stuff that really tears me up. The things for me personally are the operational readiness of our floor firefighters, uh, our capabilities as firefighters. And that's why something like a seven level school excites me so much. So I can't say that I have a suggestion other than a, a hard focus on the operational capabilities of officers, firefighters, chief officers, and I think that depending on how we get after that particular issue, it would instill some pride within the fire service too, because I feel like there's a large, I don't want to say, there's a large gap with um, a desire to be here, you know, a pride in the service. And something like FRAS, uh, Fire Rescue and Survival Course, that's put on by the reserves, Chris Boykley and Travis Bender. Something like that, replacing a rescue technician course. And I don't want to say replacing, but you know how rescue technician is like the highly sought after. This guy's a rescue tech. He's the, he's the sharp one. He's the one that we want to send to this course. I, I envision a, a course like FRAS taking place of something like that. And, you know, maybe the seven level course kind of this along the same lines. Go ahead, chief. Sorry. Yeah. I just want to run with that thread because you brought up a a very interesting point and every rescue man and every rescue God from back in the day is about to lose their, their bananas, if you will. But you bring up a great point. Why do we have rescue school? Right. When's the last time you had to do a high line to rescue somebody in the fire service for air force fire protection, right? Well, it's cool. It's cool. Don't get me wrong. It's great education, but is it combat effective? Right. Is it combat effective to what we're doing today? And I would argue maybe not. Maybe it's time we move on from some of those things we've been doing for 20, 30 years to develop the airmen we need for 2030. And we instill stuff like that, Matt, that you're talking about, because that is the new fight. That is how we grow better leaders and make better firefighters. Great point, Matt. Yeah. Why have a, uh, a requirement tied to, you know, being a, you need X number of rescue technicians. Um, instead of you need X number of people that, that have been through the seven level school or, you know, I don't know, I'm thinking out loud here, but, uh, yeah, kind of integrating those type of Mm -hmm. operational readiness courses into our, you know, career field progression. Yep. Accelerate change to the force we need. So I'll kind of tack onto that as part one of my question. Part one or part 
you know, the first half, I'm going to, I'm going to say something that's going to be, I won't say, I won't say it's funny, but you'll, you're going to laugh at it. So let's, Uh that's the second part, but we'll start with the first part. You better laugh now. The, (laughs) I I look at folks like combat controllers or pararescue men, right? And I, I think when I see an A1C, I'm like, this guy came out of tech school ready to go. He went straight from the last day of school to the battlefield, potentially, right? I don't know for certain, but when I look at that person, that's what I see, right? And that's been, you know, I went to ALS with a couple of combat controllers and they seemed very ready for the job that they were doing. And so I guess if I had a wish list, a magic wand to wave, it would just be that our, um, our younger part of our force be more ready earlier. And I don't know how that looks, right? And I guess that's the question part is, how do you think we get there? Yeah, that's a... I thought it was gonna be funny when you said I was gonna laugh. That wasn't. That was pretty. That's, heavy. that's part one. I got another thing. Okay. I got another thing. But when you think about it, right? We we send full up rounds to the field. Like when they show up at a good fellow, they are trained and ready to go to ride that vehicle. Right? They don't need. They have some OJT time to do, but they're they're good to ride the truck. Right? They have the the certification and the qualification to get after it. I feel like oftentimes individuals are renting the air force if you will if that's kind of a statement and they're not all in um part of that is they just like everybody else are a little apprehensive they come in and they're like well is this for me or is this not maybe i'm not a hard charger and it's not really they have that warrior ethos if you will that you see in tac p and you see in combat control where they are is no doubt they are all in and they are ready to go rock um that comes from history, that comes from heritage, that comes from sharing experiences to our force of what we see and how we do business and how we bring the fight. And I think everybody has a moment where they go from renting the Air Force to ownership. And that flips differently for everyone. It could be the first time you ride a truck and you go on that first call and you're like, wow, this is really awesome and click, now you're in. Um, But to your point, I don't know how we make that transition happen happen faster, right? It's going to happen differently for everybody is in could depend on your base. You could go to a base and spend four years and never see fire, right? Or you could be like me and catch fire coming off the bus and basic training and it doesn't stop the whole time. It's just, it's luck of the draw sometimes. And, but that's a great point. And I, and I think it's, it's probably more about the mentality now that you've, you know, you've hit the ball back to me on it a little bit. I think it's more about the mentality more than the proficiency side of it. When, when do I become a firefighter? You know, is it the, when I get a badge, is it when I get to my first base? Is it when I catch my first fire? There's a lot of these image and, and uh, mentality questions that I think guys are searching for early that we, we probably owe them a little bit more like you are a fireman today. Yeah. Welcome. You're, you're capable, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And just so they can own it a little bit better. Yeah. That's not to, not to steal your thunder chief or talk, um, talk over you, but I did want to mention the rookie book or the firefighter development program. And I think this is one of those cyclical conversations. You know, it's, it's a conversation that's had across time. They're going to have it 10, 20 years from now, the same kind of conversation, but uh, not not saying that you shouldn't get after those issues because that's certainly what we're doing in things like the seven level school and the rookie book, which we haven't mentioned yet, or the firefighter development book to 
to really codify that idea and actually have kind of a goal for that individual, as soon as you complete this, you are christened, you know, as a firefighter. Um, anyways, I just wanted to mention that. I, yeah. I think that that is something that we should, you know, maybe invest more into or continually try to develop right. and, and make better. And some departments are doing it right, right? They're, they're doing right. The, the, the ceremony. Here's your, your different colored helmet, yeah. you know, patting you on the back and you're good to go now. You can operate without someone holding your collar. Yeah, Whatever it's, it's like. different across. It's everywhere. It has different, but you got to value it, right? You got to right. value it, and you got to want it. I remember growing up, and and we didn't have colored helmets because we still wore the full baked potato, right? And had sure. the, the baked potato tops, stuff like that. So the big thing for us was you got the star on your CE badge, right? That was yeah. the first real tangible show of advancement you had in your career was that star on your CE badge because your, your fire badge didn't change the rank on your arm did, but I mean, that was a big deal a lot of times. And they had ceremonies for when you got upgraded in your badges and so on and so forth. And we just stopped doing that. You just went home and pulled the Velcro off and put a new one on and came into work yep. the next day, but it's a significant event and we need to bring that back. I agree. Yeah. So part two now, here's the part where you're, probably going to laugh. You said that last time. It's uh it's a doozy. <laughs> is there a chance that we'll ever not be on a 72 hour work week? Because I think it's terrible. And that's just my personal opinion. You know, I, I don't want death threats from the civilians out there that their pay is tied to how many hours they work. So please don't take this as I'm trying to take money out of your pocket. You know, we'll qualify this by saying you're, you know, you'll get to keep your pay, but does, is there any basis in reality for ever looking at that to move to a three platoon type schedule like most of our municipal partners i believe we work more than anybody else firefighter wise on the planet yeah no argument um i know there's been a lot of significant studies out there on academia where they look at sleep deprivation and and they're the effects of the 72 hour shift and so on and so forth. And if you're effective after so many hours and um, I think the data is there. I really do. I think we have enough data to make a, a, a articulate argument to those that control the manpower and the schedules. I just don't know if they'll find it interesting or they'll find it compelling, right? If they find it interesting, they'll be saying, yeah, it's pretty cool, but you know, it is what it is. We need them to find it compelling. We need them to find it compelling to the point that they're going to give us the extra manpower we need to make this happen. Because in order to do that, you're almost adding, um, you're adding a half of a one force. Third of the force. Yeah, one third yeah. of the force increase when we're already short up to 400 positions. Sure. So now I need to add almost another thousand to make that work. Um, and it would be a significant emotional event, like you said, on the civilian yeah. workforce side of the house. That's just, let's be honest. Um, could we get there? I think we could. I think it's a, it's a, it's a daunting task, if you will. But as anything else, if if given the opportunity, I will execute violently on it. Well, I think that's a good place to end it on the word violently. Chief, do you have any other questions or final thoughts? Anything else you'd like to mention that we haven't hit so far? We tried to think of kind of the big, the big rocks, the big FES rocks, and things that are. Um, you know, important to our listeners or to the listeners. Yep. Uh, first, uh, again, thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate the time to sit down and, and chat with you guys. And I really value this podcast and what you have done. Because uh, as you, as I said in the beginning, this isn't your job. Like you're doing this as a hobby and you're doing some great work. Um, 
I'm an agent for change, right? I'm trying to make changes. Chief Pittman's trying to make changes across the career field, but we can't do it by ourselves. We need the help of everyone inside our formations. And I'm always asking if you want to be part of this change and you want to help us get to what right looks like and help make change, hit me up, throw me an email, say, Hey, I want to be part of this. Put me on a work group. But I ask and I caveat that with, please do it for the right reasons. Don't do it for an EPR bullet. Don't do it for a line in your appraisal. Don't do it because you're trying to get an award because I will kick you right off that team. I have zero time for it and neither does the career field. Um, we have too much going on and we want to move forward on a lot of things and I need everybody to be all in. And, and I have, and I look for that and I want everybody to be part of the what we're doing. Um, hit me up hit me an email um, i'm on the global i think i'm the only one if i'm honest uh i'm looking for more people to help us move fire protection forward and thanks again for the opportunity uh, anytime you guys want to chat again i'm all ears we'll try and get chief Pittman on here and i'm gonna try and get you two out to more uh events to help broaden your aperture on this topic but hey thanks again for the time we appreciate you chief yeah. Thanks so much, Chief. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fire Dog Podcast. You can find more commentary, articles, and episodes just like this regularly posted on our website, firedog.us. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash the Fire Dog Podcast and on Instagram at the Fire Dog Podcast. That is the Fire D-A-W-G Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, like, and follow. Stay plugged into every new episode. And lastly, we'd love it if you share this podcast with your friends and coworkers, either on social media or right there at the firehouse. This is Matt Wilson and Ben Perry with guest chief Philip Winkleman. Until next time, stay safe.